Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bitcoin's roller coaster ride continues, but this time some of the financial establishment have jumped on board. Could the cryptocurrency be about to go mainstream? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbogh, the Economist finance editor, and coming up on today's show Can the new investment deal agreed by the European Union and China strike a delicate balance between competition, cooperation and confrontation? It's not so much naive as deeply cynical. The European leaders, particularly in Germany, believe that this is almost the last chance to get any concessions out of China. And what can companies do to bridge the gap between the workforce of today and the jobs of tomorrow? People often ask me about the cost. What happens if companies invest to train people and people leave? And I always say, but what if you don't train them and they stay? First, Bitcoin, the world's most popular cryptocurrency, had an extraordinary 2020, increasing in value by more than 300%. It began 2021 even stronger, hitting a new record on Sunday, January the 3rd, of more than $34,000, before its stratospheric rise faltered with a drop of around 10% on Monday. Its recent journey has led some analysts to predict the price will soon surge into the hundreds of thousands. Others see a bubble soon to burst, as happened in 2018. How to make sense of this whiplash ride? So 2020 was an incredible year for Bitcoin, which has been on a roller coaster ride basically for most of its existence. Alice Forward is the Economist Wall Street correspondent. In general, Bitcoin is quite an illiquid market, it's very fast moving, it tends to see these big moves. So you can see these sort of remarkable run ups and drops quite frequently. But there are two things that are particularly interesting about this run up. The first is sort of how much it's been supported by or bought into by the traditional financial establishment. So hedge fund managers, certain insurance firms, even Larry Fink, the the CEO of BlackRock, the massive index and exchange traded investing fund firm, how much they've all been talking it up. You have sort of various quotes from hedge fund managers saying that they're going to allocate slices of their portfolio to Bitcoin and that they like it as a hedge for various reasons. And the second thing that's interesting is there are new channels for retail access. PayPal added Bitcoin to its platform in October, sort of right as Bitcoin's spectacular tear began. And there are rumours that in 2021, the sort of long-awaited exchange-traded fund in Bitcoin may finally come to fruition. So there are a couple of reasons why demand for Bitcoin appears to be rising that have backed this remarkable run-up in price. What's the attraction of Bitcoin to established investors? What most established investors are saying is that Bitcoin works 
potentially as a hedge against inflation or even sort of a bet on broader anarchy in the same way that they use gold. So gold used to be used as currency. It's been used as, as money for millennia. So in times of crisis, gold is one of the, the assets that tends to go up because it will do well if there needs to be lots of money printing to re-stimulate economies, as there has been over the past sort of decade or so in various advanced economies, or because it is just sort of this anti-establishment outsider play. And so a lot of people established investors have now started talking about Bitcoin in the same terms. For example, Stanley Druckenmiller, who uh, was a former protege of George Soros, said that he liked Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation or, or sort of this bet on anarchy more than gold because it is more volatile and therefore it's a more effective hedge if you just include a small amount of it in your portfolio. But there are reasons for investors to be cautious about Bitcoin, aren't there, Alice? Yes. I mean, potentially many reasons, but there are sort of two big ones that most often get talked about the first one is is the volatility of Bitcoin. Uh, so most sort of professional or, or institutional investors like to pick investments that have high potential future returns, but sort of relatively low volatility. So in general, the goal is to maximise your risk adjusted returns. So by adding super volatile investments like Bitcoin to your portfolio, that can sort of work against that broader goal. The second one, which is sort of a bigger, more existential problem potentially, is that it's very hard to sort of disentangle the drivers or people who are interested in using Bitcoin for legitimate purposes versus those that are using it for illegitimate or even criminal purposes. Uh, so, for example, in 2019, one of the big cryptocurrency exchanges gave evidence to the Security and Exchange Commission in America and said that as far as they could tell, around 95% of the transactions that took place in Bitcoin were fraudulent transactions, either just these things called wash trades, which create the illusion of volume without any real volume behind it, or other transactions that didn't look to them to be entirely legitimate. You add this to the history of, of what Bitcoin has been used for. Another sort of famous Bitcoin exchange, Mt. Gox, was shattered in 2014 after a lot of its Bitcoin went missing. It couldn't pay out to its investors. And one of the ways that Bitcoin came to public attention was through its use as a means of payment on the Silk Road, which was an online black market. So, you know, that the history of Bitcoin, the history of the institutions that have helped people to trade it have not always been the most salubrious. And there is this sense that Bitcoin is sort of potentially most valuable or most useful for, for those with illegitimate purposes. Now, those are obviously huge health warnings. But does the, the stratospheric rise of Bitcoin this time around and the interest of established investors tell us something about Bitcoin going mainstream? So it's certainly more mainstream in that the traditional establishment have sort of warmed to the idea of, of investing in it and talk about it more favourably than they, than they used to. I do think it's important to distinguish the idea of sort of Bitcoin being a mainstream investment, something that, you know, hedge funds buy, potentially there's an ETF in that allows retail investors to buy, you know, it potentially being added to some, some brokerage firms or, or those kinds of dynamics from the larger goal that a lot of those in the Bitcoin community espouse, which is this idea of Bitcoin as a sort of secondary or replacement currency. You know, the, the reason that people appear to be flocking to Bitcoin as an investment is because it's a very liquid and volatile um, investment that acts well as a hedge against some of their other positions. 
But those dynamics, this idea of it being volatile, this idea of it being a liquid and sort of bet on by hedge funds or, or, or punted on by retail investors is the antithesis of what you'd need for it to become sort of mainstream as a currency and a payment technology. If anything, the dynamics that are pushing Bitcoin towards being a mainstream investment are pushing it even further away from becoming a legitimate currency. Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thank you, Rajna. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Next, on December 30th, the European Union and China agreed in principle to a new investment accord seven years in the making. As global players, the EU and China have global responsibilities. To it, can energise our economic recovery. But we want more fairness. The European Council President, Charles Michel, has said the agreement will help rebalance the relationship between the two parties, while China's President Xi hailed a brighter future for cooperation. But much has changed since negotiations began in 2013. A trade war between China and America has spread to multiple fronts. And under Xi's leadership, China has become more autocratic at home and more assertive of its interests abroad. With the New Deal already under fire in the West, can it offer the EU a way to constructively engage with Xi's China? This agreement matters in different ways uh, for the European Union and for the Chinese. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. So for the Europeans, it's a market access deal. It's called an investment agreement, but it basically does things like allows German car companies to get further into things like the new energy vehicle market. It lifts joint venture requirements in financial services. There's some stuff for, say, French companies that run medicalized retirement homes. There's some breakthroughs on cloud computing. But for China, it doesn't really offer a tremendous amount. There's a little bit of a guarantee that it's State-owned enterprises have more access to European markets. There's some Chinese promises around the environment and labour rights. But this is a political deal. This is about China showing that it's not isolated by a broad alliance. How has the deal been received among European countries? A lot of European governments doubted this deal would ever happen. It's been years in the making. It finally moved fast because Angela Merkel, uh, the German chancellor, wanted to push it through before the end of Germany's turn in the presidency of the EU. And President Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, also threw his weight behind it because he saw an opportunity to do a deal before Joe Biden becomes president. You're seeing European Union leaders in Brussels saying it's the biggest, most ambitious deal that China has ever signed, uh, that it achieves market access that nobody thought they were going to get, that it commits Beijing to end forced technology transfers. And they're also promising that it protects European values, including on the trickiest things like allegations of forced labour in places like Xinjiang in the far west of China. And how has the deal been received where you are in Beijing? This is being hailed as a big win 
for China explicitly as a win for a China that did not want to allow a united front between America and Europe to isolate China. This is being praised as Europe realizing that it is autonomous, that Europe is smart enough to see that a rising China is good for the world and that Europe needs to accommodate that rising China and will be richly rewarded for it. Isn't the timing odd here? It's agreed just days before a new administration is due to take over in America. Why push to close the deal now? It's a really good question, and the answer you get depends on who you talk to. So critics of this deal, and there are critics in Washington, there are also critics in some European capitals, will say it's naive that the European leaders, particularly in Germany, pushed through this deal that China has always made lots of promises about market access, you know, including when it joined the World Trade Organization nearly 20 years ago, and has not met those promises. And in particular, some of the promises that touch on human rights, China's not even tried. The truth is, I think, that it's not so much naive as deeply cynical, that Angela Merkel and leaders in her camp believe that this is almost the last chance to get any concessions out of China, that Europe is in relative decline, and that if they didn't do this deal right now, taking advantage of that geopolitical window of opportunity, which is the incoming Biden administration, that probably they weren't going to get very much more. Now, just days before the agreement was finalised, Joe Biden's national security adviser, Jake Sullivan, tweeted urging more consultation between America and Europe over the economic relationship with China. What are the risks of incoherence between America and Europe on these matters? The big picture is that there is a huge risk of incoherence and that the the rise of China is a challenge that only can be met if America and Europe and Japan and others work together. If you talk to European ambassadors here in Beijing, as I have this week, then their narrow defence of this deal is that we're reading too much into it, that nothing in this rather modest market access deal actually precludes coming back later and coordinating policies with the Americans. I think there's also a real sense of pessimism that Uh, Europe and America could negotiate in lockstep. You know, the Americans are very clear that they're defending their interests. The Europeans are defending theirs. The Americans did their own phase one trade deal, remember, in January uh, 2020 and didn't ask Europe's permission. So one of the lines you hear here is, why should we ask the Americans for permission to really just catch up and try and achieve some of the same market opening? Now, you've been reporting for some time on the issue of um, forced labour in Xinjiang. What message does this deal send about the EU's position on human rights abuses in China? It sends a pretty bad signal. You could make a case that they shouldn't have even tried to put human rights language into a market access deal. China has offered language that is so weak and so grudging that it is kind of laughable to imagine that China is going to change its policies in Xinjiang, which for China touch on core issues of sovereignty and national security. And so, you know, yes, there's a Chinese promise to look at the possibility of eliminating forced labour. But with the next breath, Chinese spokesmen say there is no such thing as forced labour in China. So you end up with this awful position where leaders in Europe, for example, the European Commission, President Ursula von der Leyen, has been saying that this deal is fantastic and gives Europe all the leverage it needs to eliminate forced labour because she has to sell this deal that she's just done. But she ends up being more confident about China's promises than the Chinese are. And that's just a really, really bad look. 
So what happens next with the deal? It has to gain approval, I assume, among national governments in in Europe. Well, this is the European Union, so there's a lot of paperwork coming. It has to be translated into all 24 official EU languages. The European Parliament, they don't expect to see a text for another eight months, maybe. And it's not a done deal, because you're seeing a lot of criticism, particularly of those bits about human rights. But the pushback from, you know, European business bosses and ambassadors here is is really pretty bleak. It's this is the best that we can do. So let's just take what we can get. What this really shows is that Europe, even the West as a whole, doesn't yet know how to manage this gigantic commercial relationship with an unapologetic one-party dictatorship. There was a really interesting and important moment in 2019 when the European Union really shocked Beijing by coming out with this kind of triptych description of its view of China, that China was at the same time a partner, a competitor and a systemic rival. China hated that final description. And the real disappointment, I think, of this commercial deal is that it really only tackles those first two questions. And it ducks the historic challenge of how to manage commercial relations with a systemic rival, a country that has a completely incompatible political system. David Rennie, thank you very much. Thank you. And to learn more about how the relationship between China and the West is evolving, go to economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber, listeners to Money Talks can access a special introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. You can also find the link in the notes for this episode. And finally, even before the pandemic transformed the world of work, the labour market was facing a severe skills gap. Education systems have woefully failed to keep pace with 21st century technological progress. Many assume that the onus is on governments, schools and universities to prepare the workforce of the future. But what about the responsibility of companies themselves to ensure the right talent is coming their way? Deanna Mulligan was chief executive of Guardian Life Insurance, a Fortune 250 company, for a decade before she stepped down to chair its board in late 2020. And she's the author of Higher Purpose, How Smart Companies Can Close the Skills Gap. I think what we're seeing in the pandemic is two things. First of all, certain skills like digital skills, video skills, things that people are using as they work from home, those kind of skills are suddenly in high demand. And many people believe the economy was moving that direction anyway. But the situation we see ourselves in now where people work remotely far more frequently has really accelerated the need for those kind of skills. And I think the other kind of skills gap that you're seeing is people who just don't have the opportunity in this economy and maybe didn't have the opportunity before, but it's become more stark to really develop the skills they need to get that first foothold on the career ladder or to move out of jobs that have suddenly become harder to find or less in favor in this pandemic economy into something more appropriate for them. To what extent should the future of education be directly vocational then? Is that one of the lessons that you might draw from the past few decades? I was just um, reading something today about the top skills that are being uh, searched for on LinkedIn. And there are soft skills like empathy, initiative, negotiation, critical thinking. And then there are what you might term the more vocational skills, project management, agile development, sales, video production. And so I think it's a mix. And our education system hopefully 
does imbue students with these soft skills, the ability to write well, the ability to think critically. But then throughout one's career, one must be constantly updating on the hard skills. And I think the idea that an education per se prepares one for a job In this day and age, I think we all have to develop this idea of being a continual learner, and we want our big companies and our small companies to be learning organizations because the world is changing so rapidly. The idea that something I did or studied 30 years ago would prepare me for what I'm doing now, that's kind of wishful thinking. How do you see the division of labour of what, what companies need to do versus what governments or policymakers or schools and universities need to do? People often ask me about the cost. Why would companies be willing to invest in this? And what happens if companies invest to train people and people leave? And I always say, but what if you don't train them and they stay? So it really is a business problem and it's a business investment to train your people to have the latest skills so they can think more broadly, think more strategically, add more value, and deliver what customers want in this environment. So I think companies have a big responsibility here. And I do think we are seeing examples of companies really taking a lead on this. For example, Apple offers free courses online to both teachers and students to learn how to code. Amazon has a program called Amazon Future Engineer that's open to elementary school students and teachers. There are all kinds of free university courses online if one would go on and look. I think rather than having access to courses be the blocker, the real problem here is having people understand what skills are appropriate for them, what they need to do, and how they can stack those together to find a job. That's where we see people really needing help and employers can make a big difference there. Of course, it's not just individuals, but companies and industries that have to adapt to radical uh, technology-driven change, just as banking has been disrupted by fintech, for example, insurtech is increasingly threatening insurers. Do you think the insurance industry can close its own skills gap? Well, Guardian is a life insurance company and life insurance companies in large part are run by actuaries who decide rates, they decide who will receive policies or coverage and who won't. They set reserves, they tell the company how much money we are going to need in the future to pay claims and so on. And actuarial science was all about historically taking samples, using small data sets to predict the behavior of larger data sets. But in this world we live in with massive computing power Our chief actuary, Michael Slipowitz, decided that those skills could become obsolete fairly quickly. We don't need to sample anymore. We can take entire giant data sets and manipulate them. Uh, Computing power is no longer limited, really. So he decided that we should develop a program to change actuaries into data analysts. 10 hours a week at work on paid work time and 10 hours a week of home study time for a year for these actuaries. And we had 20 graduates of the first program who some of them joined our data analytics group and became data analysts, but most of them stayed in the business units where they were, but used their newfound data analytics skills to add to a whole variety of business problems that they might not have been able to access before with their more limited actuarial skills. 
Deanna, what tips would you have for listeners who are thinking about how to close the skills gap in their own businesses or industries? Well, I would say, first of all, start small. It's very tempting to look at the entire company and say we have gaps here, here and here. I would pick one program. For example, at Guardian, we picked the actuarial program and start there. And you will learn a lot from implementing that program. You'll attract employees who want to be a part of it. Take a pilot, start small. Uh, Secondly, don't give up. Your first attempt may fail. We've been at this at Guardian for quite a while and we did have some early failures. And fortunately, we kept going. This is a muscle that your company needs to build. And then finally, this is a continual process. There's really not an end. So you need to develop a learning organization mindset. I think it's really important to have it seep into your culture that everyone is responsible for thinking through their own career, their own skill set, getting help from others in the company and maybe even outside the company to think about what comes next. So that learning organization culture is really important. Deanna Mulligan, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you haven't already, please take a moment to leave us a rating or better yet, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help get our year off to a great start. I'm Rachna Scharnbogue, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>